Uh, in light of Dr. Elliott's uh, comments, I do owe an apology to the new students for starting out your year with part seven. I'll only say, though, that every other generation has also experienced it. <laughs> We're always in the middle of some series. And this is uh, a series on the world mission of the church and its roots uh, all through the Old Testament as it flowers into the New Testament and to the people of God today. Uh, I will say this about where we are in this part of the series. We are looking particularly at those texts that are often known as Great Commission passages. One of the themes that we've recognized is that when Jesus does announce his uh, Great Commission passages, uh, they are actually not announcing anything new, but are actually an extension of the promises and the anticipations that go all the way back to Genesis 12, verse 3, when in the Jewish covenant, Abrahamic covenant, uh, God says to Abraham, uh, in your seed all nations will be blessed. And so it's a fulfillment and extension of that good news, and the, the so-called Great Commission passages are particular texts which, if you go back in time and you ask the average Christian uh, what, is, what is meant by the Great Commission, there were uh, at least a hundred years where the Western Church, at least, would identify Mark 16, 15 and 16, as kind of what embodies that, where Jesus says, go and, you know, preach the gospel to every creature, etc. Um, in the last hundred years or so, it's been much more likely people would appoint to Matthew 28, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them, etc., etc. And so one of the things we tried to demonstrate here is that the Great Commission is actually a whole class of texts in the New Testament that really fulfill three criteria that they are, A, they're all post-resurrection sayings of Christ. Uh, two, these are climactic sayings of Christ that either culminate the Gospels or even the last words of Jesus, as in Acts 1-8. Uh, and they are also, of course, commissioning where Christ actually issues some kind of commission. And so what we, wanted to what we did demonstrate uh, last year, I think particularly, was that the Great Commission passages are not as if we have uh, a, a commission of Christ which is recorded in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20, and in Acts 1-8, but actually they have Christ repeatedly issuing Great Commissions throughout his post-resurrection appearances. So you have them given in Jerusalem, given in Bethany, given in Galilee, different language, different times, different settings. And so we actually have Christ giving multiple great commissions. And part of what we've been doing is unfolding that, that Matthew's gospel really emphasizes the discipling ministry of the church. It's the only command form found there, make disciples of all nations. And so the call to make disciples. Mark, we have this amazing uh, emphasis on the preaching. The only command form there is to, is to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel. So you have the discipling ministry, the preaching ministry, Luke and Acts 1.8 uses this beautiful language of witnessing the, the role of the church and bearing witness to the gospel. And then today we come to John where we see this great word for sending. That's where we are in our series. That was all introduction. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this text and pray that you would bless it and open it to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. This text and John 20 is, of course, one of the great post-resurrection appearances of Christ. So think about it. Uh, Jesus has been risen from the dead. They are in the first shades, first glorious light of that great resurrection of the empty tomb. 
this is where the church recognizes that you know, sin has been defeated, the, the jaws of death have been closed, the, uh, the great gospel has emerged, the uh, you know, sin and death have been vanquished. Right? This, is, this is the good news. This is the amazing good news of the resurrection which resonates through the life of the church. And yet, when we open our text, we do not meet, uh, we're not met with a group of like resurrection disciples plotting their strategy to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? We actually get this, uh, the words we're met with is locked doors and fear. That's what we're met with. It's It's actually a great gospel moment that Christ as the risen one comes into that he commissions that. He comes into their fears. If you were writing this story, making it up, you wouldn't write it this way, right? This is, this is what's happened. This is, by the way, a theme through all of the Great Commissions. Matthew's Gospel, that amazing moment, you know, 500 people there, and it says, and some doubted. You know, Mark, they have him leaving the tomb, not full of joy and excitement, but bewildered and in fear, Luke, right at the moment where he's expecting to say, go into all the world, he says, stay, wait, don't go anywhere until you receive power from on high. And then in John, here we meet this whole point about the doors locked for fear of the Jews. So Jesus comes into that uh, moment and he shows them his hands and his side. We'll come back to that later. And he says to them, Peace be unto you. All right, this is the great Hebrew greeting, Shalom Alekim. But it is not the normal greeting like, you know, hey, how are you? Fine, how are you? You know, Shalom Alekim, Alekim Shalom. This is, this is the risen Lord announcing the peace of God upon the church that's bewildered in fear behind locked doors. This is a, this is a peace that resonates all the way to Estes Chapel in Wilmore, Kentucky. In fact, it's a double peace because he says that, he says, peace be unto you. He shows them his hands and his side. And again, he says to them, peace be unto you. He announces his peace. And then in verse 21, we have the, quote, great commission in John's gospel. Now, the minute you read this, you, you have to kind of stop like a breath. Is this the great commission? It doesn't seem like what you expect, right? We are so familiar with the language of, of Matthew up in Galilee, uh, or Jesus in Galilee, where he says, make disciples of all nations, you know, baptize them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, teach them to observe all I've commanded you. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now that's a great commission. You know, or Mark's gospel. Go and, into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever dis- disbelieves will be condemned. Now that's a great commission. You know, Luke, you're my witnesses in, in Acts 1.8. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That makes sense. Like, wow. So again, we're not in the synoptics. John comes to us with different language. He brings out different points. And even though this appears uh, most likely on the same night as Luke's commissioning, this is a, a later point where Christ says to them something which is quite amazing, very short and very unique, no linguistic parallels, overlaps. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, if you are, well, as I said, we're seeing that this is yet another emphasis, the sending, what it means to be the sent ones. 
but also it's using language that John has really been developing very intentionally throughout his gospel. So if you remember in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the number one way that Jesus refers to himself or is referred to is as, what is the title that he gives himself most often in the synoptics? Son of man. Six of you know that. Very, very good. Okay. I'm sure you all know it. Just a few are bolder than others to speak it out. That's right. It's the Son of Man, right? So this is something that is part of the, the structure of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of how Christ identifies himself, tied into Daniel and Ezekiel. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And John also has that a dozen times. John also uses that when he's in a concert with the synoptics. But John has another great theme he wants to develop and does develop, which 40 times, 4-0, 40 times, John emphasizes that Jesus is the sent one. It's the number one way Christ is referred to or refers to himself is as the sent one. He was sent into the world to judge the world. He was sent into the world. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. I mean, this is a massive theme in John's gospel. So the, as you might expect, I know you probably expected me coming to this, the 40th time is here. This is the final and climactic point of this great, great stream of being sent, where Jesus, you might say, turns the tables. He's like, I'm the sent one, sent one, sent one, sent one, sent one. And then he finally, on the 40th time, as the Father has sent me, that's number 40, I am sending you. All right, so the sent one becomes a sender. This becomes the whole theological basis for the church as being senders and us being sent out into the world. We are sent ones. One of the great things that you will, or projects that you'll face, and those of you going to pastor it, but it's true for all your ministries, is helping the people that God gives you the privilege of shepherding to see themselves as sent into the world, being sent out into the world. And this is not meant to be like, oh, those three people have felt called to go to Mongolia. It is that, of course, and praise the Lord for that. But this is about the whole general call of the church where we go out as his representatives, as the sent ones into the world. He actually uses different words here. He is, Jesus is the uh, apostolon, just like the apostle word for sending. He is sending us pimpo. It's not saying that our sending is the same as God sending the Son into the world, but we share in God's sending by being his representatives and his ambassadors in the world. So this is one of the great sending moments of the New Testament and is the basis for all the ways we lay hands on people and send them out. Many of you were sent out from your church to come here. Someday we will send you out. Many of you will have ordination that sends you out. There are all kinds of ways the church formalizes this, but this is the theological basis of the whole sending thrust of the church into the world. Well, then in verse 22, we come to this very intimate moment where Jesus comes close to disciples and he breathes on them. I really want you to feel that, you know, the holy breath of Jesus here. This is a very intimate moment. There's only 10 of them there plus Jesus. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is, this is really, really important theologically. We of course saw this in John's, Luke's gospel, wait until you see powerful and high. Now we normally think about 
uh, things in sequence form of like five events that happen at this, in the Gospels at this point. You have the cross, the resurrection, the risen Lord, the commissioning, the uh, ascension of Christ, and Pentecost. One of the challenges that we have is that we tend to see these as five separate events. We think about them theologically as separate events. We do all kinds of study of them as separate events. But part of what happens here is that they're brought together. And uh, if you know Syrian, the, the Ephraim, Ephraim the Syrian, uh, one of the great uh, saints of the church, he's one of the few saints that is held as a saint by Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and the Syriac Orthodox Church, all three regard uh, Ephraim the Syriac as a saint. So let's just accept that, okay? Saint Ephraim. Uh, he is, if you have any poetical bent to you at all, or love hymnology, one of the great early uh, hymnologists of the church. He uh, is actually known as the greatest poet-theologian of the whole patristic period. So is a rich person. In fact, one of our professors on the Orlando campus, formerly professor there, now gone on, but he, um, he did his PhD on uh, Ephraim the, the Syriac. Anyway, one of, his one of his beautiful hymns was on this passage. And what he does is he shows how in this, and he does this in a beautiful hymn form, but shows how this passage brings all these strands together trying to understand why John, what's happening theologically here. He's not denying that 50 days later the Pentecost will happen. But this is like a little, you know, uh, preparation for the big event, right? This is the hors d'oeuvres. It's like David was anointed as king, but didn't become, in what, 1 Samuel, Samuel 16, but doesn't become king until 2 Chronicles 13 or whatever. It's a, it's a huge gap there. But this is like preparing, the, the anointing, the flask is being poured on the disciples, as it were. So in this uh, unfolding, he comes in, he shows them his hands inside, that's, that's the crucifixion. He comes to them as the risen Lord, peace be unto you. Uh, he, uh, of course, breathes on them, he commissions them, that's what this passage is about, and then he breathes on them, there's Pentecost. So the whole point is, it says, receive the Holy Spirit. So the whole idea is that in this passage, one of these beautiful moments where all of the great redemptive events of this period are presented to us as one great redemptive move of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? So it's a very, very powerful point. And so I, I want us to feel that what it must have been like for the disciples and Jesus comes forward and, you know, labete numa agion, receive the Holy Spirit. And they receive his empowerment. They receive his grace. They receive his peace. And then he says to them, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Is that in the Bible? Does it say that? Does yours say that? Mine says that. Is it, is it an interpolation? Is this something, is this like, let me just check my Bible here. It didn't fall out. It's there. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What does that mean? <laughs> Where are those six that knew about the uh, Son of Man? Would you please come forward? We, we need you. We need you now. No, this is, this is, on the one hand, you know, we can make too much of this, but this is not in any way, obviously, usurping the authority and the power of Jesus Christ 
to grant the remission of sins in our lives. This is actually part of what we do every week, isn't it? We, for example, at the table, we come here and we, we, uh, we say, you know, uh, when we repent of our sins, we, we say, you are forgiven. And they respond, we respond, yes, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. This is about the authority of the church to announce the application of the terms of the gospel. It, we're not the bearers, the, we're not the originators of the gospel, we're simply the ones who apply it. What that means is, if someone comes to us and they do in fact repent and believe the gospel, we have the full authority of the church to say, and to, before God to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. If someone says, I refuse to believe the gospel, I will not accept Jesus Christ, I stand in opposition to this, then we have the authority to say, well, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are at this point not forgiven. And we look for the day when you will be. That's the whole point of this. We are, in a sense, we embody as the church, we embody the announcement of the gospel, including the great announcement of forgiveness. That's what the whole, what it means to be an ambassador of Christ in the world. We announce the terms of the gospel to the world. And we can, with full authority, not say we hope, but that we do. One of the great themes of Wesley on this point is that we need not fear whether or not we are saved or aren't justified. But we have fulfilled the terms of the gospel. We can receive the forgiveness and grace of God. So we are, we are now being equipped. This is ecclesiology already emerging here in the earliest day, the first day of the church. Well, Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples that night. Isn't that just the way it happens? I mean, think about it. They're all behind locked and barred doors. They, they, they're low on, you know, milk and bread. Someone says, Thomas, you know, you're a twin anyway. We've already got one of you here. Um, <laughs> would you run down to the market and pick up some milk and uh, some uh, bread for us? Sure. He slips out, you know, goes down there, gets the milk and bread. He comes back, and they're like, you never believe what happened while you were gone. He's like, what? And Thomas had, and again, the, I love the humanity of all these texts, because Thomas says, you know, I'm sorry. I, I just don't believe it. I don't believe that happened. Unless I see with my eyes uh, that he's risen. As I put my hand in his side, my fingers into the nail scars, I will not believe it. Now, for some strange reason, from that moment, this man has been dubbed by the church for all time with a new name, Doubting Thomas. <laughs> now, Thomas is only a week behind everybody else's doubts, right? None of them believed. None of them had any, it was not like they ran out of the, that's the whole point earlier, they ran out of the tomb, bewildered, fear, doubting, all kinds of doubts. Thomas wasn't there. A week later, Christ comes. And this man that we, you know, we glibly named Doubting Thomas, the one that one week earlier we chastised for his doubts, now in the encounter with Christ gives the greatest, most articulate declaration of the deity of Christ in the Gospels, my Lord and my God. This is the one we call Doubting Thomas. Now, if you go back and you, and you go run the clock back and say, okay, why not do this with everyone else? Okay, Moses, oh, you mean murdering Moses? <laughs> the guy that killed the Egyptian, hit him under the sand? Okay, that's it, he's over with. 
Murdering Moses, forget him. He can't be delivered. He can't be a deliverer. Murdering Moses, are you kidding me? Saul of Tarsus, you mean hold the cloak, Saul? The guy who held the cloak while he stoned Stephen to death? James and John, you mean James and John the arrogant? The ones who said, I want to set your left and right hand in glory? I mean, you could go all with, oh yeah, Peter, denying Peter, are you kidding me? We don't, we don't talk about Peter, we don't call Peter denying Peter. Hold the cloak, Saul. Arrogant James and John, we don't do that. Murdering Moses, we don't do that. We reserve it for Thomas. <laughs> we give him the full brunt. Let me tell you, Jesus says to Thomas too in this text, Shalom Alakim, peace be unto you. Thomas also receives the same uh, great, glorious reception of the gospel. Some of you here today have started this great gospel journey a week late. Figuratively speaking, not necessarily seven days, but you know what I'm saying? You know, you feel like, oh my goodness, I, I got some things I'm not really too happy about. I have a lot of messiness here. But I tell you, the gospel is good news to you too. It's good news to everybody. The gospel launches us into the great redemptive work. We join in his redemptive work. And we don't talk about the, the lost week. We talk about the great missional future. And you know, let's just do that, shall we? Thomas, what happened in history? Okay, Thomas, who we call Doubting Thomas, who gives the greatest declaration of the deity of Christ in the Gospels, ends up, they, they, we now know there were 50 ships that traveled between the Mediterranean and the southwest coast of India in the first century. It's now a proven fact. The, the, when the, they found out in the first century B.C. actually that when the monsoon winds shifted, you could a ship could be blown all the way to the coast of India, southwest India, and when the winds came back, at the end of the monsoon, it would send you right back to the mouth of the Mediterranean. And so travel between the Mediterranean world and India was actually a relatively easy ship ride. And a lot of ships did it, which are the whole spice trade in southwest India, of course, occurred and becomes very lucrative. So Thomas was on one of those ships. And in 52 AD, one of the most attested apostolic traditions is that Thomas landed in what in those days was called Malabar, today Kerala, southwest India. You can go today and see his burial site in, uh, in what was you know, Chennai or Madras. You also have an ancient church in India to this day that is known as the Marthoma Church, the, 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 uh, the St. Thomas Church in India. It's, a, it's the most ancient church in India. goes back to the first century when uh, six Brahmins uh, came and received Christ in the gospel. So here's Thomas, who started one week late, but he brought the gospel farther than anyone else. All right? Let's hear a praise the Lord for Thomas. Praise the Lord. So as president, I'm going to pass a dictum. I have very little power here. I'm mostly checked and balanced, but you know, occasionally, he's joking occasionally, I want to say, no more doubting Thomas, okay? Believing Thomas, the great confessing Thomas, the great missional Thomas. Because I can promise you, in the presence of the risen Christ, not only in the text, but even now, 
as Thomas is before the risen Lord, Thomas is known for his missional life. Satan will spend a lot of time rehearsing for you all the reasons you should opt out of the mission of God. And the gospel is all the reasons why God says to us, come and join the mission. Guess what? The only people that God extends his mission through are sinners, redeemed sinners who've been caught up in the good news of the gospel. It was D.T. Miles who famously was once asked, how do you define evangelism? I know this is not very sophisticated. I know this is not like the precise definition of evangelism, but I still think it's a great definition. He says evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. What he's saying is that the gospel is about those of us who have found healing and grace and forgiveness and mercy and power, who have found that, and we share that with others who are broken and need God's mercy and grace. We are not vessels of gold. We are jars of clay that are filled with his glory, filled with his power. That's who we are. That's what it means to be the people of God. And Thomas, in this text, amidst all of this brokenness and fear and locked doors and doubting and one-week lateness and all of that, Christ is the one who comes as the risen Lord and says, peace be unto you. As this, is, this text will ever be there as a testimony to the church of what it means for us as people that desperately need to hear the gospel in our own lives to receive it and be empowered by it and be transformed by it for the sake of a lost world. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of joining you in your mission in the world. And Lord, in this hallway today, in this, this sanctuary, there may be several here today that have been told by the evil one that for this or that reason, they're a week late, they're opted out, and they have a, they've been named something by the world, by the church even, by their own conscience, their own thoughts. But we want to be named today by the gospel. And I want everyone in this room to be named by the gospel, be marked by the gospel. So we pray, Lord, as we come to this close, we open the altar of the church, we open the altar for prayer, we open our hearts to you. Lord, may we hear today that new name, which only you know, that you declare of us through the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel. We ask this in his name. Amen.